Got uh, over a thousand barrels sitting in there, and uh, it's it's myself and one other gentleman that hand load every single one because I'm cheap. And, uh, <laughs> Got strong back. I, I, every every dollar I spend is one less dollar I can't put into another barrel of whiskey. Hey everyone, it's episode 309 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's episode, talking about river-aged whiskey, here's your weekly bourbon news update. Uncle Nearest is launching a $50 million venture fund to help minority-owned spirits brands. The fund has already chosen its first two investments, and each company is set to receive an initial $2 million in funding. More information about applying for acceptance into the fund can be found at unclenearest.com slash unventures. And if you're in the Chicago area, get ready for the first official Bull Young Bourbon Week, and it's slated for June 9th through the 13th, featuring events with cocktails, bands, brunches, and signature dishes. Get more information on the events and purchase tickets online at bullyoungbourbon.com. And now moving on to bourbon release news. Russell's Reserve is unveiling a new limited-release bourbon, Russell's Reserve 13-year-old, which is bottled at 114.8 proof. The Kentucky Straight Bourbon has the stamp of approval from master distiller Eddie Russell and is a barrel-proof release but is also non-chill filtered. Russell's Reserve 13-year-old will be available in the United States at $70 per bottle for a limited time only. And Louisville-based Uncle Bougie's Straight Bourbon Whiskey recently announced a new limited release of a 13-year-old bourbon created by what's using said to be the family's 200-year-old secret recipe produced by Buzzard's Roost. Single barrel number one is 123.3 proof, and single barrel number two is 100 proof, and the new release comes bottled in classic stoneware jugs that have been handcrafted at Stoneware & Company. Sold only online at UncleBougie's.com, Uncle Bougie's first limited release with single barrel number one is only available in a limited edition crate containing three jugs which sell for $497 plus shipping. Single barrel number two sells for $169 per jug plus shipping, and small batch number one is also available for $139 per jug, and only 700 jugs will be available in total. Booker's is releasing their second batch of 2021 called the Tagalong Batch, and this batch celebrates the way that sixth-generation master distiller Booker No learned the ropes at the distillery by tagging along with his grandfather, Jim Beam. Seventh-generation master distiller Fred No learned much of what he knows about the whiskey by following in his dad's footsteps, digesting all the information he could by working alongside him at the distillery. And it's also a tradition that Fred continues to this day with his son, Freddy, and that will also one day be shared with future generations. This release is six years and five months old, proofed at 127.9, and will be available for $90. The name Ingram, it may ring a few bells. If you're in the tech space, you may have heard of the name Ingram Micro. If you're in logistics, you may know the Ingram Barge Company. And if you're in the Nashville area, the name Ingram is pretty synonymous with philanthropy. And now the Ingram name is taking on bourbon. We're joined by Hank Ingram. He's the founder of Ingram River Aged Whiskey. The concept is pretty simple. Take a bunch of the barges they own, put a bunch of bourbon barrels on it, and let them age in a floating warehouse. Hank tells us more about his family and what led him to start this company and all the legal hurdles you face when you're trying to store thousands of gallons of bourbon on a river. With that, enjoy today's episode, and here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. 
I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Today's Above the Char idea comes from Matthew Kaiser, who writes, I've been stewing on a potential idea for Above the Char that I believe I haven't heard. Dusties have been hunted for years now, and whiskey geeks love them. However, if you spend any time online these days, you will see that people get berated for not opening bottles and just holding them. That's true, by the way. Now, some may not be whiskey geeks and are just speculating. My question is, if we don't hold on to some bottles, what will be the dusties of the future that our kids can enjoy? Now, he goes on to talk about like how cool it would be to be able to do a comparison with people in the future. And I think that's a that's a wonderful question. It's not really so much of a question as it's a kind of a look at the current mood and philosophy of buying whiskey. Yes, there is indeed uh, an excitement to you get that special bottle and you do want to open it up and enjoy it with friends. But inevitably, I think it's okay to sit one back and, and hold it over to enjoy later. Now, what will be the dusty of the future? Now, here's the thing. When I think of dusties, I like to look at how they are different than the ones from today. So I would be looking at brands that are on the rise and are brands that, uh, you know, I can tell you just knowing how, you know, the history of whiskey has gone in 20 years, they'll be completely different. And you have a chance to get younger expressions from the likes of something like a, a rabbit hole or peerless. Those are two brands right there that are young and you can get them now and you can taste them in comparison to the stuff uh, in the future. And I can guarantee you their stuff today, as well as New Riff and Wilderness Trail, are going to be sought after, highly coveted Dusties in 2041. Oh my God, 2041. Isn't that crazy uh, to even think about that far ahead? So those are four right there that I can think of that would be really great bottles to hang on to. I'd also be looking at the blends like uh, like Barrel or even like, listen, I'm not a part of their their brand, but I think uh, what Kenny and Ryan are doing with uh, Pursuit, uh, the Pursuit series, especially the United, I think that's one to take a look at in the future as well because blends are all the rage right now. Everyone's talking about blends. Everybody's getting into blends. What will they be like in 15 years? I don't know. Taste the ones from today, compare them to tomorrow. Uh, in general, I think that uh, you will not find a whole lot of, uh, of change and in interest for the ones that are through the roof right now. And if you, have, uh, if you want to sip a bottle today, you know, that's fine. That's sip the bottle today. And if you want to hold the bottle for tomorrow, that's fine too. But what's not fine is just uh, letting it go to waste and forgetting about it. So whatever you do, have a bottle have a plan for it. And if you need some help drinking it, call Kenny, Ryan, or me. We'll be happy to drink it for you. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, Matthew Kaiser, thank you for uh, the message here. If you'd like to be like Matthew and hit, and uh, write me an idea for Above the Char, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Until next week, cheers, everybody.
And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today talking about something that's very unique. We've actually had other types of uh, venture capitalists on the show to talk about what they do and how they put basically barrels of whiskey as collateral towards growing a company. And we always find that very interesting because Ryan and I, we know at this point, you know, kind of starting brands ourselves that it is a very capital intensive venture when you start getting into whiskey, especially trying to build it yourself. And today's guest is by no means any short of that. We get to talk about uh, a family and history and legacy and really what they're doing to actually start investing into whiskey in itself. So, I mean, Ryan, I, I know that we don't know much about the Ingrams, but what we could find online, it's a pretty interesting history. Yeah, I mean, gosh, one quick Google search and there's like a, a family lineage, you know, for decades uh, and it was incredible. So I'm excited to to meet our guests and hear a story and yeah, that, you know, bourbon is very capital intensive. My gosh, it's as we're finding out, uh, we, there, there's never enough capital cause you're always looking for the five years down the road. And so you have to have product to sell now and later. And so it just takes so, so much cash up front and it's great opportunity for investors because it is an appreciating asset. Um, you know, the, the clear liquid turning Brown makes it go up in value. So <laughs> And you keep adding digits onto it. It just keeps going higher up in value. And I think, you know, we've, we've been in this for, for a while now, now doing our own kind of contract new make. And we've been told that you'll never sell a barrel of whiskey for less than what you bought it for. At least in today's economy, we, <laughs> we have a pretty good, pretty good assumption that's the way it's going to be. So we hope so. <laughs> we hope so. Fingers crossed. Here's I'm the sure Hank decade. does too. Yeah. Here's in the next decade and a half, hoping that everything works out for us. So. 
Uh, so today on the show, we're actually uh, privileged to have Hank Ingram. Hank is the CEO of Brownwater Spirits based out of Nashville, Tennessee. So Hank, welcome to the show. Good morning, guys. It's a pleasure to be on. Cool. So before we kind of dig into family history and you know whiskey in itself and stuff like that, we always like to start off with some kind of like random icebreaker to kind of just get let folks know a little bit more about you. So Hank, yours is, what is your favorite video game of all time? What a good question. Oh boy. Favorite video game of all time? Um, I, I'd have to just go with, uh, with Zelda. Uh, Majora's Mask, not Ocarina of Time. Uh, I've, I've played it a lot. I've I would recommend playing it with a, uh, a cheat guide because it's a lot <laughs> game genie, a lot more fun when you know where everything is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you uh, grow up with like NES or SNES? Like, what was your your console choice? Uh, sixty four, definitely N sixty four. Heck yeah, yeah. Gold, uh, and then Goldeneye uh, and Mario Kart, all that sort of stuff on sixty four. That was huge. Oh yeah, Pokemon Snap was also a big one, but uh, you know I, I remember Blockbuster Video when that was a thing. You know you could take your your game cartridge in there and you could print out your pictures that you had taken in the game, and I just thought that was so cool. Um, <laughs> Blockbuster, so forget about those. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Ryan? Do you have a favorite? I mean, Golden Eyes probably. I, I I've probably lost three or four years easily of my life to that game, and and probably Call of Duty as well. Um, just countless mindless hours late night that it's like a black hole you just you're like what it's 4 a.m i gotta go to bed you know it's if you were addicting. into those games were you also like big into halo i'd never gone to halo because i don't know i don't like sci-fi i like reality well i mean I'll, I'll i'll jump on your i really like call of duty for me i was like i always liked the one-on-one fighting games so like street fighter and tekken like yeah. those were my two and i was i was big into playstation that was kind of like the console i loved even though we had Nintendo growing up, but PlayStation was, they had a lot of good games. I think that was like one of the first consoles that broke a lot of boundaries for graphics and stuff like that. So yeah. And Zelda was great too. I love, I, I love that game also burned a lot of hours on it. <laughs> well, we could probably spend a lot of time just talking about video games if we wanted to, if we want to just take it in a whole different direction here. I'm sure. You know, I got, I got time. It's up to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> So, Hank, let's let's kind of dive in uh, a little bit more about you and your family history. You know, Ryan kind of mentioned you could Google Ingrams in Nashville and see a, a long lineage of, of companies and, and things that had just started. Like I actually came from the tech background and or I still come from the tech background. And I was like, man, I remember this thing called Ingram Micro back in the day. And I looked at it. And I was like, oh, yep, there we go. Sold. They, they, they sold that company. I was like, that's. So you all have your hands in, in a lot of things. So I want to let you kind of just give a, a, a brief family history. Well, well, sure. And and I'll keep it brief. But, um, you know, really, it, it all goes back to uh, kind of what we're talking about, which is O.H. Ingram. Uh, so we've we've used uh, I'm technically the fourth, but I go by the third. And, and my grandmother was going to name my dad the third, but she thought that was too long. So she kind of cut one guy out of the family tree. So uh, it's, a, it's a funny story. But uh, you go back to my great, great great grandfather. And, um, he was, uh, orphaned as a young child, uh, and, uh, grew up in New York, moved to the, the Midwest and, and was in, uh, Wisconsin was in the, the lumber business. And he was working in these, uh, sawmills. He actually, I mean, he was a very smart, just kind of like this gentleman lumberjack, if you will. Uh, he invented the, this technology called the double edge ganger, which is a different way to cut trees and I guess finish them. Uh, but he never patented it. And so, um, you know, he always kind of regretted that. And I, I've heard these stories of, of uh, you know, how he started out and 
um, he was the one that really kind of started our, our family on, on uh, our, our journey that we are on today. And it is a journey, you know, uh, while the sawmills are important is the way that they would ship the, the wood when they cut these trees down is they'd send them down the river, down the, the Chippewa and, and other rivers uh, to, to the mills where they'd be processed. Fast forward to my, uh, well, it was two generations later to my great grandfather, also known as uh, Orrin Henry Ingram. Uh, he went by Hank. He took that uh, kind of legacy and, and got us into the, uh, the barge business. We were uh, really started in the barge business around the, uh, the late 30, 30s, early 40s. And just again, kind of that river lifestyle. Uh, he moved the family to Nashville. That's, that's why we're still here today. I grew up in this, this family that's, that's been around the river. And when I was in undergrad, I always thought I would be a towboater. I, I didn't realize till you know, I got out of school that there'd be a little bit of an asterisk beside that, that, uh, that definition. But so I, I've grown up around a, a family that's, that's been around the river. And we've also got an interest in, in book distribution, which uh, was kind of a, a fluke that my grandfather wound up getting into this business. And, and that's kind of where the Ingram Micro things came from was uh, some future iterations on, on that enterprise. But uh, what I'm doing today is, is kind of tied back to uh, what our, our family has always kind of been in the industrial space. And uh, I, being around the river, I, I knew a few things about shipping. And when I discovered uh, a bourbon, uh, really it was after college that I, I kind of got to take, take an appreciation to it and, and learn more about its history. And uh, once I understood how it, it had this relationship with the river, you know, these, these settlers, as they were, were running from the tax man uh, on the East Coast, they went to the West you know, to the wild frontier, which was Kentucky at the time. And they settled along the river and they had this great highway system, which was essentially the river uh, and used that to, to ship their barrels to market down to, to New Orleans. And, and that's where it got distribution and really took off on, in popularity. And learning about that history, it, it kind of went, oh, well, I know a little something about shipping things on a barge and, you know, let's, let's see what we could do with, uh, with whiskey. And, and that's, that's why I'm, I'm here today. You got to tell me first, what's a towboater? All right. So a lot of people talk about barges, but uh, the boats are actually the things that you use to push the barges. Uh, I always get the question, so do guys like live on the barge? It's like, well, no, they actually live on the boat that's pushing the barges. So, uh, you know, little towboater inside joke. Uh, so a lot of the folks in the industry, they, they're not bargers, they're towboaters. Yeah, see, now it makes sense. There yeah. you go. Towboater is a good living too. I had a client who did that he would leave louisville out of louisville go down to you know new orleans and it you know take him a week then pick a boat back come back up here he loved it yeah well you know you live on the boat for a month you know 28 days on 28 days off so uh it's like a family away from home and these guys they the boat is their it's their floating home uh and it's a really unique culture and and uh actually some of our biggest supporters of the 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 business going on um with the whiskey, have been a lot of towboaters out of Paducah and in Western Kentucky. And so, what made you think that you were going to be doing that for the rest of your life? Well, uh, I don't know if it was necessarily that I'd be doing it for the rest of my life, but it was, it was just a, an idea of you know, here's something that's unique and different. Uh, nobody else seems to be using a barge or or a floating rickhouse. Um, turns out, it's illegal to warehouse spirits on a vessel, so we had to get around a few elements of red tape. But now we've got the first floating rickhouse anywhere in the world and fully permitted, got uh, over a thousand barrels sitting in there. And uh, it's, it's myself and one other gentleman that hand load every single one because I'm cheap. 
And, uh, <laughs> that strong back. I, I, every, every dollar I spend is one less dollar I can't put into another barrel of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, as Ryan said, yeah, hopefully you're going to have a strong back to do it. I mean, we've we've been to plenty of warehouses and we've seen people that clock barrels and move them in and out. And we're like, oh, that doesn't work. That's not fit for us. We're not going to do it. Well, I'll tell you a story. When we first got out there and started loading the barrels, this was spring of 2019. And I, I got this pallet stacker, uh, which is uh, hydraulic foot operated. Because uh, when you're in a, in a rick house in a barge uh, that's got barrels in it, it's an explosive environment. So you're limited on the type of equipment you can use. I learned that the hard way. Uh, I didn't blow anything up, but uh, I was telling somebody about you know, tasting barrels with a DeWalt drill. And they said, well, that's explosion proof, right? And I thought they were kidding because I was like, what's explosion proof? No, it's a drill. Uh, so I thought I would get myself, you know, this fancy loader and uh, it was a hydraulic stacker. And I start pumping the thing up uh, with my foot and it goes about an inch every pump. I said, okay, that's doable. I load two barrels on it because that's what it would fit. Well, once it had a thousand pounds of weight on it, it'd go about, well, it took 10 pumps to go an inch. And uh, I had had six of my buddies out there and we were going to load this thing up. We we're going to roll 300 barrels around. They heard taste 300 barrels. I said, move. So there's a little bit of communication. Uh, and about five of them quit within the first three hours because it, it became a, a CrossFit class trying to pump these things up. And after that, I, I spent a little bit more money on the right equipment, but lesson learned. <laughs> I, I would imagine that. And so to kind of roll this back a little bit. So you all are, are trying to do something unique of, of having a floating rickhouse. Um, and, but I also kind of want to, before we get into some of that, I want to talk about, you know, your venture into this. Like, at what point did you say, you know, whiskey has a, has a really good future. And I, I think that we should start really putting some money here and, and looking at, you know, the outcome, like what are, what's the return on investment? So kind of run us through whether it's spreadsheets or whether it's ideas or just talking to the family, like what was it, what was that catalyst that really drove you that said we should probably get into the whiskey business too? You know, it was, um, really what spurred the interest, uh, was in, was I was in business school and I was working on finance and accounting, kind of brushing up on those skills and went to a, uh, a whiskey tasting that was put on by a club there and really fell in love with the, uh, with the story of, of how it's made and, and the craftsmanship that goes into it. And, and so from there, I, I kind of had this interest. And then I wanted to learn a little bit more about the business side of it, because obviously when you're in business school, uh, they pound this stuff into you. And, and so it was just some research of, you know, what does it take to make whiskey? And, you know, the more I, I got into it, as you guys have, have uh, come to, to learn, yes, you, it's very capital intensive, but there is an opportunity to take hundreds of dollars and turn them into thousands of dollars if you are, have the patience to wait long enough. And so, you know, using a little bit of knowledge and, and mostly a lot of dumb luck, uh, I started building out the spreadsheet. And from there, I had conversations and just would fill in a little bit more of the blanks as we go along. And so to give you time reference, uh, I really started the idea at the end of 2014. And we didn't launch our first whiskey until uh, the end of 2020. And, and uh, fall of 2020. So it it's really been a, a, a six-year journey to not only uh, get the business plan right, but also wait on on the whiskey to to reach the you know, the right level of maturity, being on on the barge and and getting that that interaction. So I came up with the concept, and I had discussions with the right folks in the industry. And you know, I think the stars aligned a little bit on this. My uh, my godfather, who I've 
uh, grown up next door. His He has a, a place next door to my dad, and he's been very close. I always called him Uncle Robert. He's a, a liquor distributor here in town. And, uh, you know, I went to business school, got exposed to the bourbon story and the history there, uh, being in the barge business as a family. Uh, it's just kind of like the pieces were there and it, it'd be shame on me for not trying to put them together into something. Well, you're kind of speaking my love language when it comes to spreadsheets. So I can, I can totally relate with you on, on that and being able to figure out what's the viability uh, of being able to do this. And so in 2014, you had this idea and you're, you're kind of taking it back and forth and figuring out, is this something that can be possible? At some point, you've got to go and you got to get capital from somewhere to make it all happen. And was there talking to family, like kind of talk about how either that happened to be able to you know talk to them and say like, hey, I want to do this. Like, should we start investing funds in here? Like, how did that all sort of come about too? And did they think you were crazy? Because that's always the one thing. We talk to people and they're like, we're going to start a distillery. And everybody's like, you're crazy. Don't start a distillery. Yeah. Well, you know, some in my family heard uh, illegal to warehouse spirits on a vessel and they're like, see, it'll never work. And um, I was like, okay, well, you know, I, I like to be a little uh, tenacious and, and see if I can flex things without necessarily breaking things. And um, we found the right guy uh, who, you know, just happened to be at this tax convention where they were talking about something. Uh, this this Lozman case where the kind of the meat of the case was if something floats, is it automatically a vessel? And uh, it went to the Supreme Court, determined, no, just because you float, you're not automatically a vessel. We use that logic to to apply for our experimental permit and then ultimately an operating permit. Um, but to get the capital to do so, um, I, I really kind of fronted the the initial experimental side, if you will, with with my own savings and and then once once we were able to determine that the the barge had an effect on aging the whiskey, um, it was a much simpler proposition. And I tasted my friends and my family on it, and it was like, I think we have something here, and uh, it's it's got a unique story, it's a unique process, and uh, and and whiskey, in my opinion, is a good investment. And I just I used those three tenements to to go out and convince some friends, convince some family that, yeah, hey, let's throw a little bit in here. To your point about spreadsheets, the only thing that I've found that is right on a spreadsheet is your name. And, uh, and I got some great advice, which was raise more money than you think you'll need, which came in very handy. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I'd say everything that we've raised, we've put into, into inventory. And, you know, I, I keep a very tight ship. It's uh, just me and one other guy. And then we have a, a, a team that we work with uh, for for marketing, and then a, an outside team that we work with for you know, communications, and uh, and then with our distributor. So really, kind of managing all these pieces and bringing them to, together. But you know, my first focus is every dollar that I spend on something that's not whiskey is is one less barrel I get a bottle in the future. What was the initial first run of barrels that convinced you that the whiskey had changed on that boat? So we did a, an experiment of nine barrels total. We took uh, three barrels. And aged those in a rickhouse, and we took uh, six barrels uh, across two different barge types. Uh, yes, there's actually different types of barges, and I wanted to see which one was more suitable for for aging whiskey. And that's where we kind of came up with this fiberglass design, which the barge that we use now, ironically, used to be used to uh, transport corn. So it's it, you know it still has corn in it, it's just a, a little different shape. And and so the the six barrels. After six months, there was a, a noticeable difference in the way the, the, the whiskeys 
kind of took this divergent path from from the control samples versus the uh, the barge samples, and and after that time, it was okay. There's potentially something here. Let's let's take the next step. And uh, again, we were operating on an experimental permit at that point, so we had to go from experimental to operational. And um, now we're we've got the operational permit, and you know I'm about to lay down a about 700 barrels this year, and you know each year kind of growing it. But when we got that experimental permit. Or excuse me, the operational permit, you know, I started buying just a handful of barrels. So, you know, the first release that we came out with was 40 barrels. Uh, and so you go from 40 barrels of our first release, and now we're laying down 700, four years time. You, you, you talk about capital intensive. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm learning that especially. <laughs> oh, and, and then you sprinkle a pandemic on top, and then it gets really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. What was it that gave you... Uh, a non-vessel status versus vessel. You were talking about like if it floats, it's not necessarily a vessel. So can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. So a barge is a, a bucket. I, I find that uh, there's not a lot of people outside of Kentucky. You know, trains go through everybody's community. People know what trains are. Uh, barges are kind of in certain parts of the, the country. And so not everybody has uh, familiarity with what a barge is. So a barge is a, a bucket essentially that moves grain, moves gravel, coal, uh, cement. Um, there's chemical barges uh, as well, but those are kind of a different design. So this particular barge was designed to move grain. Uh, it's a little bit uh, deeper than your normal barge. Um, it's 200 feet long. It's about 28 feet wide inside the hopper itself. And then from the bottom of the floor to the top of the, the cover, because these are covered, uh, is about 20 feet. So we have the capacity to hold about, this barge will hold 2,000 barrels, but the next one that we're going to design uh, will hold 3,000 barrels. Yeah, coming from like a whiskey geek side of this, like I'm, I'm trying to picture in my head, like what makes the barge unique to the aging process? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus Magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. 
shopify.com slash bourbon. What makes the barge unique to the aging process? Like, are the barrels, I'm trying to think like where it floats, like are the barrels like at, you know, below sea level? Are they a little bit above sea level? Is it trying to basically take that same approach that we see in Kentucky with, you know, cold winters and hot summers, like kind of talk about some of those approaches to it. Sure. And, and I, I love the science aspect of it because I, I'm not a marketing guy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I can take decent photos and some of the ones on our, our website I've, I've taken, but beyond that, it's, it's not my forte, uh, but I love science and, and the science of how whiskey ages is what really got me going on this. And, and so there's three factors I think that are important to why uh, this this process is unique. And, and I think the most obvious is being on the river, uh, this barge is exposed to a lot of motion. And so we don't actually transit the, uh, the river. We stay in one point and it's uh, in Wycliffe, Kentucky in Ballard County. Uh, that's the headwaters of the Mississippi. It's where the Ohio River and the, uh, the upper Mississippi come together to make the lower Mississippi uh, right across from Cairo, Illinois. And so the, the point on this river, it's, it's a half a mile wide. You get a good windstorm that comes up and, and we get some pretty good waves, but there's a lot of water flowing through there. Um, and so the, the, the barge, it's actually about 70 feet deep where it's, where it's moored. And, and so there's a lot of just water flowing past, a lot of water around it. And so it's constantly in motion. And, uh, and you go into a normal rickhouse and you'll see they have these things flo- uh, hanging down called a plumb bob. And the plumb bob is used to uh, indicate if the rickhouse is, is you know, overweight on one side or the other. And if it is, then, you know, okay, we need to go load this side over here to keep the balance. Well, the barge is so big when you go inside of it and you can't, you know, there's no windows or anything. Uh, and so I, I put this plumb bob in there to actually capture visually what the motion is doing. And, and if you look at it, it's, it's doing just kind of this, this gentle swaying back and forth. It's not, it, it never stays just, you know, straight perpendicular. Uh, and so what that's doing is it's keeping these barrels constantly in motion. And so the whiskey inside the barrels is, is churning slowly over the years, and that's exposing more of the whiskey to the sidewall of the barrel. It's, it's kind of increasing the surface area. And so you know, if you think about the way a whiskey barrel ages, the stuff that is imparting the flavor and is receiving the flavor is the whiskey that's touching the barrel. And, and so the stuff in the middle is really just kind of sitting there. And so by, by keeping this motion, you're, you're constantly getting the whiskey washing over the charcoal. I think there might also be, you know, kind of a sub point of that, which is as it moves over this charcoal, uh, I, I think the natural filtering process of the, the charcoal itself, not just the, the sap and the wood, but I, I think we're seeing some of the, um, some of the compounds, the, you know, the, the heavier chemicals and whatnot getting filtered out. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's really resulting in this nice kind of creamy mouthfeel um, with a, a little bit smoother finish than I think you'd expect on, on some of the ages. And so that's, that's one, uh, the first element. The second is on the river, it's very humid. And, and so we get a lot of, of this humidity coming off and, and keeping our barrels moist. So, you know, in your traditional Kentucky summers, uh, you, you get very hot in the top of the rickhouse. And uh, when you do, you get hot and dry. We get hot and stay moist. And uh, what that's doing is it's keeping, the, it's keeping the barrels sealed a little bit better. So we don't, uh, you walk in there and you don't get this giant whiff of angels share like you do in your traditional rickhouse. And um, I think it's also keeping the sugar inside uh, more of a molasses consistency rather than, you know, drying out and, and kind of losing the ability to impart flavor. So that's, that's kind of one uh, hypothesis of what's going on there. And then the third is, is the temperature. 
um, as we as y'all mentioned. So uh, we get huge diurnal shifts in the summertime. And diurnal shift is your difference between your daytime highs and your daytime lows. And, uh, and so it can get up to 120 degrees in there. And then once the, the sun goes down and the water kind of works like a heat sink to pull the heat out of the barge, it'll get down to you know, 80 degrees. So you, you get a 40 degree temperature swing uh, inside there. And then even in the wintertime, the water keeps the barge actually slightly warmer because the, the temperature of, of the, the water is warmer than the atmosphere. And so once you get below kind of 40 degrees, whiskey kind of goes dormant. And so it stays kind of on that dormant line inside the rickhouse, which is is kind of interesting. So, you know, it's the temperature, it's the humidity, it's the motion. Uh, to give you an example of, of motion, right now it's about 30 feet on the, the river gauge, kind of how high the water level is. Uh, the low point this year was about 15 feet. Earlier uh, last year, to the, uh, 2020, when the um, we had a bunch of rains, I think it was up in the 50s. So, you know, you can get 35 feet of, of vertical fluctuation on this barge. So there's there's a lot going on in there. For somebody who went to business school, you seem really amped up about everything that's happening on with the whiskey here. Well, listen, uh, it's great to have great ideas, but if uh, if you can't put uh, put a number behind it and convince investors, you know, passion only goes so far. So, uh, you know, you got to make them greedy by the, uh, by the business side, but uh, you have fun with the passion. For sure. You know, kind of one question that I have as well is we probably didn't get into it because, you know, you know a lot about barges. It's in your family's business, but like, did you grow up on a barge? Was your first getting any sort of work experience, like working in that sort of industry, like kind of talk about how you became so knowledgeable on barges as well? Uh, I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. There are guys out there that, that uh, technically can do things with rope. You wouldn't even imagine. And, and they know all the bits and pieces and the, the terminology is just a whole nother thing in itself. But so I, uh, I went to Washington and Lee university for undergrad. And during the summers, I would work in the family business uh, in different parts of the, the organization. Um, for a moment there, I thought, oh, I, w- I wanted to be a computer programmer. So I worked in our IT department, shadowing somebody who was a programmer. Shadowing a programmer is very interesting because you're, you're watching them type over their shoulder and you don't have a lot of technical skills. So it's like, yeah, and can you like make this chart look pretty? So I, I realized I didn't want to go in that, that route. But understand what the what that side of the business is like. Um, I spent some time with, time with our sales guys. So I was uh, actually in Hazard County, Kentucky uh, with some coal miners. And, and we went through Lexington uh, right when I turned 21, actually. And, uh, and boy, uh, coal miners, they know how to drink their whiskey. The, the next morning, uh, our sales rep who I was with, he, he, he met me at the elevator with a handful of Advil. <laughs> he knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, so you know, I've been in different parts of the business. Uh, when I graduated college, that's when uh, I actually went to go work on the towboats. And uh, I spent some time as a deckhand and uh, it, it started out in deckhand training school in June in Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, it's hot, it's humid, and you're, you're lifting these 90-pound straps of coil. You're, you're lifting these 112-pound, something like that, ratchets that they use to tighten the... the so all the barges are, are lashed together, if you will. And you use these cables and these ratchets to do so and tighten it all down so it's good and, and taut. Uh, and then the boat pushes it. Our normal tow is about 15 barges on the upper rivers. On the lower Mississippi, where it's good and wide, you know, we can go 45 uh, up to 56 barges. Okay. And so we're talking 200 feet long, 35 feet wide, and you've got 50 of those. Uh, we can actually move uh, like four acres, I think, of, of real estate in front of these boats. 
So it's slow, it's quiet, it's out of the way. People don't really know about it, but corn, you know, the corn moves uh, mostly by, by barge if it can. Uh, it's the greenest and, and the, uh, the least expensive mode of transportation. So, uh, you know, folks are like, well, what do barges do? Like, well, you turn on a light switch, you're welcome. Next time I'm on the Ohio River and I see one, I'm just going to be like studying it now. Yeah. It, and it doesn't have whiskey on it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you can't put, you can't move the whiskey it is essentially. It's, it has to stay stationary. It, you can actually, you can on a bill of lading, you know, ship things down the river. Uh, if you can ship hazardous cargo, uh, I think even, uh, you know, just about anything can be shipped on the river, uh, including barrels. But uh, then you have state apportionment with taxes and you, you've got all these kind of issues as a company. Uh, I don't believe uh, Ingram has ever shipped whiskey um, that was barreled. Uh, I believe we've actually shipped um, a tank of, of whiskey before uh, or alcohol used for, you know, industrial processes. But uh, so that can be done. But for our purposes, because we are warehousing, um, it, it is, it is a, a DSP. It's a permitted facility. And so um, the permit uh, is for an area. It's not for an activity. So we can't, we can't leave that area because they want to be able to come and see, okay, we've got all your barrels here and, and we know what taxes to assign. And uh, so for that reason, we, we don't move. You know, but at the worst case scenario, if like, if things just like went bad, you could be like, all right, pull up the anchor. Let's, let's tug this thing down to Mexico. Let's go. <laughs> It, if you see that barge floating down the river, call me because there's an issue <laughs> <laughs> and, and something's gone wrong. You know, you had mentioned that there's, you know, there's a lot of things that you can, you can take on to a, a barge, you know, seeing as, you know, your family's been in this business for a long time. Can you recall like the oddest thing that you all actually had to take down a river, like circus animals or something like that? Ah, uh, man. So... I, I, we actually move molasses uh, in in barges. As I said, we've we've moved uh, neutral grain spirits, basically vodka, in, in barges. Um, we've done a few project cargo things way before my time. We were involved in the uh, uh, Alaska Pipeline, I believe. Uh, we used to have some uh, ocean going barges, and actually, we pioneered the first ocean going uh, towboat and barge, and then it sank. So we got out of that business. But <laughs> good story there, yeah. yeah. We don't hear that one much at the family table, but it's always kind of fun to, to, to poke. What happened to that one again? <laughs> <laughs> what was its name? Um, so, I, you know, it, listen, uh, for any of your listeners out there, if you got something big and bulky, we had somebody call us one time to see if they, uh, we could move their house for them on one of our barges. So uh, who knows? We have a, a logistics business. We'd be happy to, to have a conversation. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, figure that one out. So it sounds like you've got a, a lot of great plans for the future for the whiskey and everything like that. I mean... It, you it talked about the these barges holding what two thousand three thousand barrels something like that. The the next one uh, barge V two will hold uh, three thousand barrels. I mean that's that's pretty sizable. I mean, do you kind of look at that as like okay, like that's our scale point, like we're we're good here, or do you like envision a a fleet of barges sitting here that are holding tens of thousands? You know, I I'd love to be at a at a fleet of barges. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of done the math and. We would not need a huge fleet, but to be a, a pretty significant uh, brand with some some good distribution and presence, you know, it would it would probably require about ten barges or so, depending on how how old our stuff is and and you know what capacity we we need. But uh, no, I I, I foresee uh, there's a day 
uh, in the future where the, the bank of, of the Mississippi River is lined with a bunch of whiskey barrels uh, mellowing on the Mississippi. Have you ever thought about uh, contract storage for other companies? Because um, there's a lot of shortage in storage, you know, for because there's a lot of people contract distilling at other places and they just don't have the storage. Has anyone approached you about, hey, I got barrels that I want to age on the river too? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it It is something that we uh, have talked about and and we'll probably explore at some point. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm still in the process of of tweaking the process. And until we're able to, um, you know, really get, get the fine points down, it, the warehousing business is not exactly a, an incredibly lucrative one until you have a, a good scale. And it's, it's all about costs at that point. You know, when you, when you kind of think about the whiskey business, there's the, there's the brand side of it, then there's the industrial side of it. And, and the brand is really where the, it's, it's like the content of, you know, uh, it, and then you've got the distribution business. The, and content is king. Brands are king. Uh, brands have staying power. If, as long as you take care of them and nurture them and feed them, if, if you're contract distilling, you have to put that whiskey into something, uh, you know, and, and you need a brand to be able to do that. The, the distillation process is, is really, it's all about scale. It's, um, you, you know, how, how much whiskey can, can you churn out? And then it's probably less uh, capable of, of absorbing demand shocks. You know, right now, whiskey is in this huge boom. And if you go back and look at uh, in the 70s, there was actually more drinks of alcohol consumed uh, than, than today. And we had 50 million less eligible drinking age people back in the seventies. And then of course it went through this long decline and, and uh, you know, that's, I think why people see, aha, there's this, there's this need for, for additional whiskey because we haven't even hit the the high watermark of when it was last hot. So that's kind of all the elements that I, that I think about. And I've been asked, you know, do you want to start a distillery someday? And I, I, I won't, I won't rule it out, but you know, whiskey is, is made in a week and aged in years. Um, and, and to me, I, I really want to focus on the, the, the artsy side of how you age it. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy to let somebody else, you know, uh, or let, let me borrow their kitchen and use my recipe, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're pulling on our heartstrings there because we feel the same exact way. Like let the people that know how to distill, let them go distill. We'll focus on, on what we think we can do best. Um, I know what we actually have one of your bottles. It's actually down by Ryan. I forgot to grab it before this. I mean, do you want to kind of divulge like where you're getting sources or anything like that from? So people have an idea of you know, either like what they could think of like a base profile and what they could compare it to when they taste yours? Sure. So uh, our first release uh, is the straight whiskey. It's a three-year minimum age. And um, this is uh, created from two different mash bills uh, that we blended together from uh, MGP. It's a 95% uh, rye whiskey with a uh, 36% uh, rye bourbon. And uh, we we blend those together to uh, to, to get this about sixty seven percent final rye profile, and you know I think you can kind of compare uh, against uh, other MGP products. But um, being in the barge, what we're really trying to focus on is is using this process to extract uh, different flavors than your traditional climate and process would allow um, anywhere else. So you know hopefully one day folks are looking at their their bar and they've got their scotch. They've got their bourbons, they've got their Tennessee whiskeys, and then they got their river aged because, you know, each one is a little bit different process and product. Um, but going forward, uh, we have a, a partner distillery in, in Owensboro, uh, Green River uh, Distilling Company, and, and they've been um, they've been really sourcing or been the source of our our, our next uh, 
laydowns and, and all of our new fills. Yeah, yeah so I, I see you talked about how you partnered with a distributor uh, there in Nashville. Uh, and also I saw, you know, on your filing too, you partnered with a Brindiamo group, which is a big brokerage, you know, in the whiskey game. We've had them on the show. They're great. Talk about how important that relationship has been to your business and kind of deciding who do we want to part with contract distilling sourcing and kind of how did, how, how instrumental have they been? Uh, hugely. So again, this kind of goes back to the stars aligning on all this sort of stuff. So when I was in business school, I'm working on, on this idea in a class called launching the venture, uh, which taught by a, a professor at Vanderbilt who, um, he's an adjunct professor. Uh, he, he brings in 40 people in the class and then everybody has to pitch an idea. And if your idea is selected as one of the top eight, you, you get to hire your classmates to, um, to be your employees and they are assigned different roles. And he really forces you to kind of hone your, your, your story, hone your, your business plan. And so going through the process of doing our diligence, uh, I reached out to my godfather who's been in the space. His, his family was the first distributor of Jack Daniels. He's got stories from his grandfather of, of, you know, some of the really cool perspective on, on the way Jack Daniels got started. And, and so he's just a, a wealth of knowledge and information and all around great guy. And, uh, and so we're, we're sitting down and he says, well, you need to talk to, uh, to, to Jason McMurray, who I don't know if you had Jason, uh, you probably had Jeff on, uh, Hotmire as well. And, and so I, I talked to Jason and, um, you know, I'm, I'm telling him what all I want to do. And he's like, well, you know, these barrels are flammable. What happens if it gets struck by lightning? He says, do barges get struck by lightning? I said, oh, all the time, but I think we can <laughs> mitigate that. And, uh, and, and so, you know, his, his goal, I found out later was to talk me out of this. Uh, and, and he went back to my, my godfather and Robert says, well, did you talk him out of it? And Jason goes, no, I think he might actually have something here, you know? And so I, again, was, was, was kind of took the knowledge there. We won our case competition in the class. Uh, and then I decided I wanted to pursue the experimental side of this. And, uh, Jason reached out to me and said, Hey, by the way, I'm, I'm leaving Lippman and uh, I'm starting my own thing. I'm going to go uh, with uh, Jeff Hotmeyer at Brindiamo. And, uh, you know, we're going to work on bringing brands from grain to glass. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to be involved. And so his timing uh, and, and what he wanted to do, he, he kind of brought some of these relationships to me. And uh, they've been immensely helpful, even from, you know, when I was thinking about, okay, raising money, you know, I was, I, I kind of had a valuation in my mind. And Jeff said, way too cheap, raise that value, which I'm glad he, 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 he convinced me. So, uh, you know, I'm, I started when I was 25. So a 25 year old, uh, as much as we think we know everything, you, you quickly learn you don't. And so the, the key to getting to this point has really been find people that know what they're talking about and ask them all the questions and then say, what have I not asked you? Listen. And, you know, I met the, the, the music construction guys and talked to them about building rick houses. I, I met um, Bardstone Bourbon Company. I met with, you know, kind of a lot of these, these folks in, in the area. And, and since just being around the industry, I've gotten to meet some other folks. So uh, it's, it's been, you know, every day is a learning experience, just being willing to, to, to listen and always go back and say, okay, was that assumption right? And do we need to change something? That's great. I mean, and, and as we kind of wind this down, this has been a fa fascinating kind of look into to you, your history, your family, kind of how you're carving your path in here as well. I guess one last question I'll have for you here is, were there any unforeseen hurdles when you started getting into this that, that you, you know, have crossed at this point? 
hydraulic pumps, pal- hydraulic pumps and pallets. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I I'd say there's been uh, opportunities to to improve, and you know, the the biggest hurdle I think that we faced was um, really uh, trying to figure out do we have enough whiskey? Because once once the uh, the, the first reviews started rolling in and you know, we got 94 points in the tasting panel and, um, you know, we've, we've just kind of been collecting uh, some some really nice feedback. It's it's kind of like, oh, great, uh, we're growing. And it, it's like the good news is you're growing. The bad news is you're growing. So where, where are you going to find the money to, to, to keep going? And and so I think just like any business, uh, it's it's managing uh, your, your growth. And and so it's a great problem to have. Uh, it, it's but it's it's certainly a hurdle because. You know, I don't want to grow this thing too quickly and and bomb twenty states with our product uh, because again, it's it's me and and one other guy, and then uh, you know the two of us are are the face of the brand, and and I don't want somebody that hasn't helped me load the barrel and the barge out there talking about our product because uh, you know they they don't have that physical connection with it. So that's um, it's probably a long winded answer, but it, it, it's really just a, about how do you control growth. Absolutely. I thought it was great. And and Hank, thank you again for coming on. If people want to know more about you, about your whiskey, how do they follow you and how do they find it? Sure. So our website's ingramwhiskey.com. You can go on there and uh, I'd recommend folks check out our process page. If you want to learn more about the actual process, we uh, we have a real-time hydrograph on there where we track the rise and fall of the river. And you can see, you know, what's been the highest stage, what's the lowest stage, how much has our barge moved moved cumulatively of, over the year. Um, and, and so, you know, some stuff for folks to nerd out on and we'll, we'll update that with uh, additional features uh, as, as we go forward. But um, Instagram, it's Ingram Whiskey, Facebook, Ingram Whiskey. Uh, and if you're out in, uh, in Ballard County and, and want to come to, to Wycliffe, uh, give us a year because uh, we're still working on, on, you know, making sure that everything's COVID safe and whatnot. But we'd love to take folks through at the right time and into our barge and, and, and show them what we're doing. Yeah, we'll come. We'll get our sea legs on and yeah. see what's going on out there. Well, well call me. Uh, we're loading our, our next batch of, uh, of whiskey, hopefully, in, in one in March and one in June. And uh, I've got extra life fests if you need them. <laughs> well, cheers. Thank you again, Hank. And make sure you follow Ingram Whiskey on all those socials. You can also follow Bourbon Pursuit on all the socials. And make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. Cheers, everybody. Thank you again. And we'll see you all next week.